Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Welcome, one and all. I'm your host, Amber Bucher. Excited to be coming to you today to talk about visions for the future. We'll hear from a bank tech provider, along with their investors from Capital G, Alphabet's independent growth fund, about their efforts to arm community banks so that they can keep up in the digital arms race. Then we'll check in with a founder of a direct-to-consumer fintech, making government benefits more easily accessible. Finally, we'll bring it home with a traditional bank working to combat the effects of global warming. We hope these conversations will inspire you to embrace a bold vision for 2022 and beyond. All right. So I am so excited to be here with Nathaniel Harley from Mantle and Jesse Wedler from Capital G. These guys have been working together through Mantle Series B that they just raised this last spring, which Capital G led. And we're super excited to talk to them about that. Mantle, if you don't know, is very well known for helping to modernize the bank infrastructure, particularly with their account opening platform, which is well known in, in my circle of the world, at least, for being able to open a bank account in less than three minutes. So Welcome, you guys. Great to have you. Thanks for having us on. Yeah. Good to be here. Thank you, Amber. So, Nathaniel, Mantle just published research that shows that folks are really wary of neobanks. Uh, they don't they don't trust them a ton. You posted about that on LinkedIn. I thought that was so interesting, given the origins of Mantle, where you guys started out originally thinking that you were going to be a neobank, and then you kind of made this pivot to instead serve existing financial institutions. Can you tell me a little bit about that and, and maybe, you know, how this research has highlighted that perhaps that was a good decision for you. <laughs> yeah, totally. So, you know, obviously when we first started out building our own challenger bank, we, we very much set out to, you know, essentially compete with a lot of the, the traditional FIs. We quickly realized that the bigger opportunity was helping enable them and really tapping into really the, the competitive advantages that they have they can be more nimbler. They play a really important part in the economy, the communities that they serve, and, and all of that. And when we released this banking report, I think one of the most interesting, interesting things that came out was a lot of consumers actually don't trust the neobanks over the, the traditional banks, which we thought was interesting, just given a lot of the growth you've seen in the media and, and press for, for a lot of these neobanks. And, you know, I, I think, you know, it, it kind of comes down to a, a few things. Neobanks don't really, you know, rank well when it comes to personalized services. They're not really deep into the actual community in the same way that the community banks and, and credit unions are. Um, and, you know, they are definitely targeted targeting um, groups of, of the demographic, like underrepresented folks and, and, you know, pockets like that, which is amazing. But, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, you know, we're just seeing a big push towards, you know, consumers ha- consumers trying the neobanks, but ultimately having multiple accounts in, in different places and preferring to ultimately bank with, you know, their community institution. I think the, the other piece to that, which we find super interesting, is you actually look at the data, 
consumers actually won't do business with a financial institution if they don't have something like an online account opening, regardless of actually how they prefer to open accounts, right? And, you know, that's really important to us because less, you know, I think it's just over 50% of banks have online accounts, which means, you know, 40 plus percent actually don't, which is a huge opportunity. And, you know, they're really missing out on, on capitalizing on a lot of the good ones they built. Jesse would love to bring you into the conversation. What about that, that Nathaniel was just describing this mission really appealed to you guys at Capital G? For sure. So our fund, Capital G, we're a growth stage fund backed by Alphabet. And our goal is to find transformative companies. And for us, that is companies that are going to transform the industries like Stripe, like UiPath, like CrowdStrike, some of our prior investments. And we think Mantle has the potential to do that for banking. The, the reason that we got excited about this is when we step back and look at banking today, we think that, well, there's a lot of talk about neobanks, a lot of investment in neobanks. We think there's a huge underserved opportunity for helping traditional banks really modernize and compete in the digital era. And we think that's important because traditional banks are really a fabric of our communities, and they also have a lot of relationships that are very important for banking. And there's a lot of populations that probably never really want to or aren't comfortable yet being fully online. They want to have some sort of relationship or a physical process to go back to. So we think that's a big opportunity. And then when you step back and look at the numbers, there's probably $200 billion in market cap of companies that are just serving the existing technology needs of the U.S. banking system. And when we think about the future and technology going from really just a cost center to an area of priority investment, we think that spend can actually grow a lot. So we think there's a huge market opportunity for replacing some of the existing technology vendors, but really growing into the new opportunity. And then when we got into the specific landscape of what are the needs and who are the vendors that are doing this and offering the products that banks really need, the, the obvious one in the last year has been people need account opening. And so we started to get to know Mantle, and what we realized is it was initially you know, a product around account opening, but a much bigger vision around how can we create scalable integrations into the existing core systems so that we can then enable these banking customers and partners to really grow from here. So it's not just going to be account opening, it's going to be where do we really grow from here, because we've built a scalable foundation that we can, that we can grow on top of. And that to us is really appealing because I think that's the foundation for building a, a company that can really help transform this broader sector. Yeah, so Jesse, um, I'm very curious. You've invested in a ton of companies from Gusto to Duolingo. Did you learn something about this wonky world that we live in in the community banking realm? And, and what was that like for you? Yeah, I think it's... Um, I actually really enjoy getting into a sector like this where there's a lot of people who are really dedicated to what they're doing, who are passionate about it, and it's pretty misunderstood from the outside. And that to me is like, okay, I always see there's opportunity. There's people who really care about the industry. There's a lot of reasons why this industry should thrive going hard, but they're not really being well served. That was like a, a blinking light, like saying, okay, this is part we want to spend our time and invest our capital. Yeah, and just maybe like emphasize that point. The community banks and regional banks and credit unions have really been underserved, right? And the, the biggest the biggest piece of that is the legacy infrastructure that they've been operating on. And when you look at, at, at the ecosystem, they're still running on systems that were built in the 60s and 70s and 80s. 43% of banks are running systems that were written in COBOL, which is a programming language over, over 30 years old. And that's actually a big issue because the people who know how to program COBOL are passing away, they're retiring. Exactly. There's a whole group in Texas that exists just to find 
COBOL programmers and help get them work at these banks that really need help. Exactly. And so it's, it's no wonder that the market share that the money center banks have, you know, essentially gained over the past 25 years has grown from, I think, 16% to over 50%, right? Because they haven't really had the, the partnership and, and the vendors to succeed when, you know, banks are spending billions of dollars in technology that's hard to, to compete with and the fintechs are ostensibly, you know, building a, a better UX at, at the end of the day. Yeah. Jesse, going back to kind of your track record, I noticed that you've been in- investing in some really interesting companies of late that are focused around identity and data, Uncork, ID.me, and then it, it seems like a really interesting synthesis with the work that Mantle's doing because there is so much KYC and, and know, you know, know your customer regulations that have to be followed to be able to open these accounts so quickly. Just curious if that's kind of a theme that you're riffing on these days or where you think we're headed in, in the terms of identity. Yeah, it's a it's a space that we think a lot about. And the reason why we spend a lot of time around it and have been lucky to partner with some awesome companies there is because I think identity is really the gateway to a lot of critical industries moving online. And it's, you know, healthcare, it's gaming, it's hospitality, but specifically financial services. I think financial services is going to be a huge opportunity for for being digital. And identity is critical for anyone who wants to be digital in this, in this world. So we think, you know, when we look at it at an industry, we say, okay, what are the what are the adoption curves and who are gonna be the companies that benefit the most? And that's why identity and account opening are kind of like come hand in hand when you look at just where the industry is today. But we always want to see a company that also has a roadmap for we're starting here, but we've got this huge vision for how we can partner with this ecosystem, these customers for years or decades. And really, this is just the beginning. Yeah, maybe, Nathaniel, you can tell us a little bit about what that roadmap is. Certainly. So key to our strategy is is how do we enhance the bank's existing legacy infrastructure without them needing to change it today. So we've built a, a piece of technology that we call our core wrapper API, which is essentially a core agnostic API that reads and writes real time into the bank's core banking system. And what that allows us to do is launch these digital products really quickly on top of this legacy infrastructure without the bank needing to take on the risk of a core migration today. I think you've obviously seen some partnerships recently, whether it's you know, J.P. Morgan and Thought Machine, and there's obviously a, you know, an increase in, in some of these headless core banking systems. I think that's great because it's going to push the, move, the industry forward, but a lot of banks aren't ready to do that. There's a massive cultural hurdle that they still need to overcome. And, and when we started talking to so many of our customers and bank CEOs and bank executives, we realized that that phenomenon is 100% true, and we need to find a way to enable them today, provide them with best-in-class service, best-in-class advice on top of this legacy infrastructure without them needing to you know, go through the pain of, of a core migration. You guys are obviously very focused on financial institutions, but are there applications for your technology moving into other sectors in the near future? So the way we think about it is there's obviously a lot of open space within banking and, and banking in the U.S. You know, the things that we're focused on now are, number one, how do we help banks and credit unions capitalize on a lot of the goodwill that they built through COVID, through stimulus, through the PPP program? And how do we help them convert these relationships with these SMBs who, quite frankly, many of them would have gone out of business without the help of the community banks? How do we help convert them into 
long-term customers. And so we've been really focused on expanding the platform, not just into consumer, but also into businesses, whether it's SMBs or, or complex commercial accounts to help the banks take advantage of that. I think the other piece of that is really focusing on not just the online digital strategy, but also the human-to-human interaction. So, you know, I think there's a huge, a lot of people talk about what is going to happen with branches, and, you know, obviously the number of branches are going down. I think what we believe is that what branches look like in the future is changing. We don't actually think they're going to fully go away, right? And it's very similar to retail, right? You see all these direct-to-consumer companies pop up like a Casper and they start off online. And what do they do now? They actually opened a physical location that people could go in and start, you know, to have a showroom and, and look and at And they're in mattress mattresses. firm. They're exactly. partnering with these incumbents. Exactly, yeah. right? And, and we think the role of a branch is going to evolve, provide people with a human-to-human interaction. And, you know, the online channel will be used for, you know, acquisition and, and really converting that customer in, into, you know, a, a, um, into a customer at, at the end of the day. So, you know, I think we are true believers that you need to have both, which I think well positions the community, the existing FIs from some of the new entrants who are focused on digital, right? They have that competitive advantage in addition to, you know, in many ways, regulatory advantage, being nimbler, uh, better understanding the community. The one point I'd add to that, I think it's, um, I think Nathaniel does a really good job articulating kind of the, the value and the vision, but I think it's, there's a, a big imperative, imperative around the speed of adoption because it's, um, it takes a long time to figure out what your, what your roadmap is as a bank and how you actually get there. But the longer you wait, I think it's just going to get a lot harder to, to really be able to keep up and be digitally competitive. Yeah, I think account opening has been the number one priority for community banks for the last three years, according to a cornerstone yep. research report that they do every year, maybe four years. And it's like, OK, at what point do we just pull the trigger and get the account opening? Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and just kind of hearkening back to the report that we did, I think one the, the number one reason why banks have not necessarily made this jump is because of the legacy systems. But when we also dig into the data, they've also been burned in the past. Right? They've been burned by the vendors that they've been working with, and they've had really bad experiences. And, you know, that only adds to the cultural hurdle that they're experiencing right now. And, you know, I think we've made a ton of progress, right? The number of banks that have had online account opening at least on the consumer side, has increased from 20% about three to four years ago to, you know, just over 50%. So we're making headway. But this is existential. This is life or death in many ways. Like, if you do not adopt digital solutions, whether that's online or in the branch, there's a very good chance you may not be around in, in the next five to 10 years. And that's a scary thing to say, but I think it's really important for these financial institutions to understand because they do need to start adopting technology. And the, and, and the beautiful thing is once they do, and once they have the right tools to compete, they can be extremely successful. We have customers that are, you know, opening the digital branch becomes their best performing branch in a matter of months or raising, you know, millions of dollars in deposits in 15 days or opening hundreds of thousands of, you know, customer accounts a month. And, you know, I, I think when given the right tools and, and working with the right partners, they can actually be very successful. And I think those are the ones that are poised for long-term success and, and, you know, will be around in the future. So Nathaniel is obviously very passionate about this. I'm curious, Jesse, what do you look for in a founder, in a team, when you're looking for an investment opportunity? Yeah. Um, 
I think about this a lot. And I think, first of all, I look for someone who I just want to work with for a long period of time because I view this as a, you know, 10 year plus relationship. So it's kind of like getting married. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I look for a person and a team who I want to work with. And then behind that person, I want to see, you know, a, a big vision that where it really gets back to our mission of investing in transformative companies. So we're not just going to be, uh, you know, uh, one of many. We're going to be kind of hopefully a company that can help really lead an industry forward and have a big financial impact, but also just a big, you know, qualitative impact on helping industry because I think that creates a lot of awesome kind of flywheels where you get really good people working around it, you get good companies spin off of that, and you help your customers a lot. And so that is the best if we can find kind of all of that in one. And it's hard, but it's um, it makes for a lot of fun what you do. Well, everyone would do it if it were easy, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so another thing about Nathaniel's team that, that I know maybe some of our listeners don't is that they are really good at doing new things with a bank, partnering within a bank to create a new type of account that they've never had or um, really just being good partners. And I, I don't think that – I think that – to your point about banks being burned in the past, I, I think it's hard to trust someone. It's hard to find a good partner. So can you speak a little bit to how your team really gets in there and rolls up your sleeves and kind of does the work with these FIs? Certainly. So I, I think it's a few things. Number one, we are taking a modern approach to product development. Our goal is to build a top 10 product development organization. And part of building a top 10 product organization is understanding the customer. Right, and really talking to the customer, understanding their pain points, and then innovating, right, and, and trying to, to to build solutions that move them forward in a really big way. On the other side of, of the coin, we take a very consultative approach with our banks, right? We don't charge them for this, but at the end of the day, their success is our success, and it's really important for us to drive best practices and give our strong recommendations. We're highly opinionated on, on things that we do, whether it's you know non-document-based verification versus document-based verification or the number of products you should be offering in your suite, things like that. And, you know, that's usually a conversation because it's quite different from the way banks have done stuff in, in the past, but it's super important for this, their success and, you know, ultimately their success is our success in, in the long run. Maybe if I can just add to that, I think the, the other thing that I look, that I see when I look at this industry is there's a huge desire for help and transformation, but it's so challenging. And so to your point about people feeling burned, I think this is where the, the power of technology is it well-built software. First of all, it's it's composable. You can you know mix and match it and use APIs to integrate different modules. But it also a, a great software company will understand how to build best in class tools that appeal to the different customers, knowing that not every customer is going to be exactly the same, but they can build highly scalable systems that appeal to the needs and use cases. And it actually works. It doesn't break. And you don't need a big services component just to maintain it. And so that's the that's the beauty of modern software, right. and that I know the future of banking will will be able to embrace, uh, but they, they just really haven't been served like that in the past. Thinking about your team and this this really unique approach that you take to helping customers, part of this most recent raise was uh, I think going to be used to grow that team. So how do you maintain that culture as you're scaling? It's a great question. It's, you know, it's definitely something we are hyper-focused on and something that's really important, especially as we scale. We have doubled the team this year alone, right? And by the end of the year, we'll probably have three X a team. I think it all comes down to our values at the end of the day and making sure everyone we hire lives our values and understands our values and our values are transparency, it's accountability, and it's collaboration, right? And it's really important that we find people that 
live and breathe those things because ultimately we think that is what makes a really healthy organization. And those are things we look at, you know, look for in, in all the people we hire, especially as we're in a hyper growth mode where, you know, we're adding positions all across the organization, product development, sales, marketing, operations, etc. This is a really interesting time for Mantle. I'm curious, Jesse, what lessons you've learned from working with companies that are in a similar stage to this, some of the, the pitfalls, the things that they have to work, work out and watch out for at this stage? I think the, the biggest thing is, you know, while the the best founders always have a very clear vision of what, what they're building, what the future looks like, but the road to getting there is never super quick or easy. Like it, it, um, to transform an industry, to, to really change the way your customers are doing business, it takes time. And so it takes education. It takes aligning a team. It takes, you know, overcoming a lot of obstacles. Uh, and so I think it's, um, it's, it's never going to be uh, a direct straight line up into the right. It's always going to be kind of, you know, a little bit of ups and downs. Uh, but the people who are really determined that you have a great team behind them are the ones who can actually accomplish it. So you have to find people who are really making their life's mission to, to go do this. And I think what's been really important for us and, and who we've surrounded ourselves with, whether it's Jesse at Capital G or the Point 72 folks or, or the D1 folks, is, you know, people are in this for the long run. They're in this to help us build a generational company. And they understand the dynamics of selling into banks, right? It's a long sales cycle. It's a picks and shovels business. You got to go really, really deep. And it's really important to have support and supporters for that because, you know, these things will come if we do the right thing and invest in the right product and, you know, grow the organization in a really smart way. What do you guys think, kind of zooming out, what do you think is the biggest innovation that is really misunderstood right now? In fintech, oftentimes there's like more hype people getting it before it's actually applicable. And so I think in some ways, like cloud, while it's like everyone knows that's kind of the future, it's um, it's almost overhyped versus versus where people are actually today. I think out of the 500 billion of IT spent for financial services, I think less than 10 percent is less than 10 percent of that is actually going to cloud today. And so I think there's um, a mismatch between everyone thinking this is this is already here, but it's still so far from really being adopted. And so if we can find ways to accelerate that, that's the best path to really transforming this. Yeah, I, I, I would definitely second that. And you know, I, I think it just goes back to some of the cultural phenomenons we're, we're seeing at these banks where, you know, it's going to take time for them to adopt. Luckily, COVID has probably sped things up, you know, three to five years. And hopefully there are no more digital deniers at this point. But, you know, it, it change takes a while, especially in an industry that historically has been slow moving. All right, guys, what do you wish I had asked you? I think there's an interesting question around whether this technology landscape will be fragmented or consolidated long-term. Historically, it's been consolidated with very smaller players. Right now, we're going through kind of an unbundling or a fragmentation, if you will. And I think there's an open question about kind of where where it will land in 10 years and what's best for the ecosystem. Yeah, and I, I think to that point, you've obviously seen consolidation in the industry and, you know, it's sort of picked up a little bit over the past, you know, few months or, or this year. But I think the reality is banks are here to stay. Community banks are here to stay. Regional banks are here to stay. There's a world where they exist with the money center banks and they exist with the, the fintechs that are popping up and, you know, ostensibly are, are just another type of community bank at, at the end of the day. And I think what the, the key differentiator will be and what will really separate the winners from the losers is 
adopting digital and having the right tools to compete, because if they do have the right tools, they will be successful at the end of the day. Perfect. All right. Jesse, thank you so much. I won't ask where to find you because your inbox will be ridiculously full. But Nathaniel, where should folks reach out to Mantle? So you can reach out at sales at mantle.com. Uh, you can always go to our site, mantle.com, and you know either download one of our white papers and see some of our case studies or request a demo if you're interested in, in seeing the product. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. It's been a pleasure having you. The way we move money is changing. We want to send money in real time to the other side of the world. We want everything in one place, integrated, seamless, and on our devices. Embedded, fast, standardized, frictionless, and secure. This is our financial future. Technology is advancing at a blistering pace, and it's causing clients to ask for more from institutions in the capital markets. In this season, we discuss changing stakeholder demands. ESG, banking and payments as a service in the cloud, and how technology innovations such as AI, machine learning, robotic process automation, and more might hold the answer. Is the world's technology up to the challenge? Are we? This show is sponsored by FIS. Find financial futures on your favorite podcasting app. FIS, advancing the way the world pays banks and invests. All right. Hi, everyone. I'm super excited to be talking with Jimmy Chen this afternoon. Jimmy is the founder and CEO of a company called Propel. They're doing really interesting stuff serving low-income Americans, particularly through their app called Providers, which helps people with low income manage their government benefits and their money. So this is going to be a great conversation. We're going to go a lot of places and touch on a lot of diverse topics for how we can better serve the un- and underbanked in the country. So... Jimmy, I'd love to get your just kind of elevator pitch for folks that don't know your work about about what you do. Thank you so much for having me here. Um, so uh, at Propel, our focus is on low-income Americans, on people traditionally who get uh, government benefits through programs like the food stamp program. So food stamps is used by about 42 million Americans across the country each month. And uh, when you get your benefits on a debit card called an EBT card, you call the 1-800 number on the back to check how much money you have left on the card. Um, we asked the naive question of why isn't there a mobile banking app for this, the same way that there is for any other kind of uh, modern financial product, um, and didn't get a great answer. It's challenging to think about how consumers navigate safety net services. And so we built uh, an app that acts kind of like a mobile banking app for the EBT card and the food stamp program helping people to manage their government benefits and improve their financial health, um, used by a little more than 5 million families across the country each month, uh, starting from kind of this core pain point of needing to check their EBT balance to know how much they have left in food stamps, but extending that into kind of this broader challenge that people who get food stamp benefits have oftentimes a variety of other challenges. And if we can build a relationship with those consumers, um, we can help them to solve challenges in healthcare, in transportation, in childcare, in utility payments, and so on, by being sort of the trusted financial hub. Awesome. You said that you asked a really naive question. I'm going to, I'm going to ask, why was that such a naive question to ask why there wasn't an app? Is it just 
obvious that no one wants to wants to wanted to do this or well naive because I didn't understand anything about how the EBT system or how government benefits work okay. when I got into this got it um, and so through that learned a lot about the ways that federal government works with state governments the ways that state governments work with private contractors the incentives of those contractors to build certain systems and not build other systems based on how their contracts were structured so naive because I think it took me a long time to learn more about the system which is important when you work in an industry uh, that is complex like this, that it's highly regulated, that involves a lot of, you know, old contracts. Um, it's impossible to make a big dent without understanding what you're getting yourself into and without understanding what other players are doing. So that it, it, it took us a few years to kind of get our footing and to figure out what we were doing. Um, but I think it's, it's great to, to know a bit more about how the infrastructure works now. That's really interesting that you weren't aware of how that benefit checking process worked before. What led you to start the company? What gave you this idea? Yeah, in some ways, I think if we had known how complex the system is, we wouldn't have started the company. So it's actually really good that we were naive and kind of jumped into it and, and went into it with a beginner's mindset of, hey, it just seems like from a consumer standpoint, you should be able to check your balance on your phone. All right, it should be much more complicated than that. Um, yeah. And, and like, why can't you just do that? Um, so the story of Propel and how we got started, I, I grew up in a loving and supportive family that also had its share of uh, financial challenges. Um, I went to college on a full uh, financial needs scholarship, and then I worked in, in Silicon Valley at a couple of tech companies as a software engineer turned product manager. Um, in 2014, I left my job in Silicon Valley with this idea of taking the toolkit of Silicon Valley tech and applying it towards the challenges of low-income Americans. Um, this feeling that people in tech really understand certain problems extremely well, but not a lot of other challenges, and that people solve the problems they understand. And that uh, there's this opportunity to take the skills of modern tech and apply them towards specifically the daily challenges of people who are um, using safety net programs and struggling financially. Um, I moved to Brooklyn to do a fellowship program called Blue Ridge Labs. It's run by the Robin Hood Foundation. And it was really through that program that I spent a lot of time talking to folks in, in New York City about their challenges on a day-to-day -day basis, navigating the social safety net, to learn more about the experience of applying for the food stamp program and learned about what it's like to get food stamps and buy your groceries at the grocery store using uh, food stamps. And um, sort of brought that beginner's mindset of, you know, why is this product not working like other payment products? Why is it that, you know, We've got this amazing fintech industry that puts consumers at the center for all sorts of other consumer fintech products. Um, why, is, why aren't those, those same principles of building, building mobile first, thinking about the user experience, why aren't those being applied to a government benefit program that on the surface actually kind of looks like a fintech because at the end of the day it's creating a payment card? Absolutely. I want to double click on this idea of only solving the problems that you can see. We all obviously view the world through our own lens. And so we get, especially in banking, we get a lot of the same products that are created for this kind of middle of the road client that we assume is going to be, you know, profitable. Um, how do you, how do you push others to get to a place where they can think through another lens and solve problems for people that maybe don't look like them, don't have the same situation, come from the same background that they do. How do you get, how do you build your muscle at being able to empathize and think through those issues? Yeah, I think there's two components of this. The first component is that we need to make it easier for people of all different backgrounds to start ventures, to, to build things, to come up with ideas and to implement those ideas. Historically, the barriers to capital, the barriers in, in technology have been so high that it's so difficult for someone who's, for example, someone who's on food stamps, probably doesn't have a lot of means to be able to start a technology company or a fintech company. 
And that's still the case, but I think I'm optimistic about the way that things are trending with banking as a service platforms, with Amazon Web Services, with all these other trends going on in technology of decreasing the upfront costs to start a venture. That, I, I, I hope, will drive more um, you know, more founders of all different backgrounds to be able to start companies. So that's number one. Um, but uh, if we can, you know, that's kind of a long-term play for like how do we change who gets to be in the room, who gets to start a new venture. Um, I think in the shorter term, I think there's a real opportunity to just listen to people from all different backgrounds when thinking about what problems you want to solve from a consumer fintech standpoint. That um, you know, the the reality is people who are struggling financially. That is not an edge case in the United States in 2021. Unfortunately, if you think about building a mass market fintech, being able to understand people who are living paycheck to paycheck, people who are struggling financially or who have different financial challenges, that is a that is the core American financial consumer these days. And so just encouraging founders, uh, entrepreneurs, people who are building fintechs to think and to talk to people that are dealing with a variety of different financial challenges when they're thinking about what problems they want to solve. I think that's the starting point. You have a really great group of investors that, that back Propel that clearly, you know, aligned with this vision that you have and, and believe what you believe in, I'm sure, uh, in terms of who gets to be at the table. What was it like talking to investors and, and really working to convince them that there is a value opportunity, there's, there's growth potential in low-income consumer base? Yeah, um, honestly, it was tough. I think pitching people, uh, especially in the early days of the company, that we were going to be a, a venture-backable company that was building software for people on food stamps, that was that was a tough sell. Um, and finding investors who believed in that, uh, it took me a few years. Um, for, the, for the first few years of the company, we really struggled with capital and couldn't find investors who really believed that we were going to be able to make not just the impact side of the company work, but also the economic side. Right? That's the biggest challenge. That that sure it's possible to build a nonprofit um, that serves people who are very low income, but how do you build a sustainable business that can grow and reach a billion dollars serving uh, this consumer base? And I think um, the way that we ended up breaking through really was by creating a product that we made it very clear that people wanted. So for the first institutional round of capital that we raised, we already had our app in the, in the market. Um, it was used by about 100,000 people, um, and we had never raised capital before. Um, my belief in, so, so clearly there are some disadvantages and challenges when it comes to raising money while serving a very low-income population, but there are also some advantages, and I think one of the advantages is that there's not a lot of competition, right? That like the services that are users generally have to navigate on a day-to-day -day basis are so bad that building something better can be 100x better. Mm -hmm. And so was, that was sort of the, 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 the basis by which we started at Propel, was this idea of like, let's just like apply the best practices that are already de-risked in consumer technology or fintech, but apply them towards building a respectful service for very low-income Americans. If we do that, we think we can grow really quickly. It was really that growth that caught the eye of the investors um, that we were able to get on board. We were fortunate to find investors who um, I think see it the same way that we do in terms of, um, you know, kind of uh, recognizing Propel as a mission-driven company, but as a mission-driven company that is not trying to take any concessions on the revenue or the financial growth of the company, that we believe we can be um, just as profitable, if not more profitable, than other companies in the sector by building this product and building the trust of low-income uh, populations. Speaking of growth, I know that Propel is Propel and the provider app is growing very quickly. Uh, it's, it's a lot more than just checking your EBT balance now. Can you tell me a little bit about what you guys are building? Totally. So we launched a debit card that's bundled into the app. Um, 
over the summer and have seen really great uptake and traction when it comes to that product. You know, the, 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 the background of where that came from was that as we talked to people who were using the app to manage their food stamp benefits, we came to realize that people's financial lives are far more complex than just the food stamp program. That even if you think about the narrow slice of just food purchasing, for almost all families who get food stamps, food stamps were only a portion of the, uh, the kind of grocery spending budget for that family. And that as we looked to what are the other areas where we could have a positive impact on someone's financials, we came back time and again to core banking, right? That is the, that is kind of the starting point. Um, by which people think about their financial lives. And so we started to look into the different core banking options that were available for consumers in the marketplace. And while I think fintech has taken lots of strides forward in terms of products that are um, not charging predatory fees and that are a better fit for consumers than the traditional bank accounts that had lots of overdraft fees, um, we still didn't really feel like there was anyone in the market who was really thinking about this as their core customer. Right? When I say this, I mean people who are getting food stamp benefits. Um, you know, our average household income is something like $15,000 per year. Only about a third of our users are currently working and receiving income from, um, you know, some kind of earned wage. Um, and so this is a demographic and a profile of American consumer that I think is not traditionally thought of in the sweet spot of fintech. And as we looked into the, to the different ways into which this person's getting, for example, direct deposit from the federal government in certain ways or dealing with a variety of challenges when their balance goes down to zero dollars per month. We were really feeling like the fintech products in the ecosystem weren't a great fit for these consumers. And so we started looking into what it would look like for Repel to build our own in partnership with a lot of great vendors who helped us to stand that up quickly and cheaply. Um, and so it was really that product, the, the provider's card that we shipped over the summer, sort of transformed the provider's app from just checking your, your EBT balance and managing your food stamps into really helping people manage their entire financial lives. That's great. I'm really excited to, to hear about that growth. And I want to talk, too, about how you went about learning about your customer. It's so crucial to do that customer research and know, know that you're giving something that's desirable and not just feasible. Um, and I think that some institutions struggle with where to start in that process. So can you talk a little bit about how, how you've gotten to know your customers and maybe something that you learned about how they manage their financial lives that was maybe surprising? Sure. So I think as a premise, one of the challenges that we face um, is that we're building for a user that is not us. No one who currently works at Propel is getting food stamp benefits. And so we have the challenge of trying to build software for people that are fundamentally not us. We do have people in the company who have been on food stamps themselves and have personal lived experience, and that's important. But the reality is every single day they're employee at Propel and they're being paid a high salary, like that takes them farther and farther from the lived experience. And so talking to our users and learning from them is a fundamental part of our business. It's a thing that we just have to do. It's not a nice to have. It's a must have for us. Um, and it's not actually all that complicated, right? It starts from just talking to our users. So we do a lot of um, user interviews and research, which is just another way to say we ask our users to tell us about their experiences. We ask them which features they like and which features they don't like. We learn about their financial lives in our app, but also outside of our app. That's really the starting point for us. Um, a few of the other ways that we get feedback from our users and communicate to them. Uh, we run a lot of surveys. So we've started doing a lot of survey work during the pandemic to be able to publish information about 
um, you know, as the as the economy changes, as various government programs change, as Congress talks about the safety net, you know, what is actually the lived experience of people who are using safety net services, and what do they think about things? Um, how do they think about what's going on with housing insecurity or food insecurity? Um, and those are trends that we publish on a monthly basis on our website and hope to just elevate the voices of our users beyond just propel into the broader national conversation about financial health, about you know what poverty looks like and what people in poverty actually are looking for. Um, the final thing that we do is we, we also look at the data. Um, just the, the fact that we've got 5 million monthly active users means that we do have some data about what features people engage with, which features people don't, um, and what things prove really effective, right? Because the, the reality is coming from a consumer tech background, we know that, that oftentimes in user interviews, um, people can only talk about things that they uh, fully intend and that often cases people will behave in ways that are not fully rational. And I don't mean this to say anything about our customers. I think this is true of all humans. Um, and so I think that's that's been certainly one of the challenges. Um, in terms of different financial things that we've learned about our users, there's a whole uh, a whole bunch of them, and I'll, I'll, I'll point to our website where we do publish a lot of those insights, talk about how things are trending and changing when it comes to the pandemic and financial health. Um, one of the things that we've learned about our users is that their financial lives are extremely fragmented, that for low-income Americans, oftentimes they're less attached to individual banking products. So I think there's a stat that the average American uh, keeps a checking account for about 17 years at a time. So, uh, you know, finding a new bank account is a... You know, you can afford to pay a, a high cost of acquisition because someone's going to stay in that account for 17 years. Um, you know, we've worked with a variety of different institutions and found that for our users, the average tenure on a debit card or a prepaid card tends to be more like three months. Wow. And uh, th that is a huge mindset shift in terms of how people think about financial products, that for a lot of low-income Americans, they feel more temporary and disposable. And oftentimes that's because if your balance goes down to zero or goes negative on the card, right, that's a reason to not retain. Because what's the difference between using this card versus just getting a new one? Um, and so that, that sort of mindset, I think, has forced us to think about how do we help um, build a longer customer relationship with the users that we're serving? And how do we help them to see value in retaining this product for the longer term? I think that allows us to build stronger unit economics, which allows us to then pass on the savings to our users in the form of no monthly fees, no um, you know fees that help them um, to ultimately stay on this product and improve their overall financial health. I'm so glad you're doing this work, Jimmy. Um, what is something that I didn't ask you that you wish I would have? Ooh, maybe like one thing I'll. Uh, talk a little bit about is I think a, a, a somewhat underappreciated trend when it comes to lower income Americans right now is, um, is government payments and direct deposit from the federal government for things like the SSI program for people on disability or the child's uh, tax credit for parents in the United States who make under a certain amount of income. These are all things, uh, the SSI program has been around for a long time, but the child tax credit is relatively new, just started over the summer. And while obviously people in fintech are generally aware, I still think it's a little bit underappreciated what a massive impact and a big change that is for a lot of families. So the average person who uses the Providers app is getting about $500 per month in the child's uh, tax credit payment. And for a family that was only getting, you know, maybe $1,000 in income per month previously, that's a that's massive huge. change. Yeah. And um, 
And so I, th I think it's an incredibly positive uh, change to the safety net, to the financial lives of low-income families, but it doesn't come without risk. That for a lot of folks, you know, the disposability of financial products also makes it harder to consistently receive that payment via direct deposit. Um, we know a lot of our users are asking lots of questions about how does this actually work? How do I know that I qualify? You know, if I got paid the wrong amount, what do I do? It arrived a week late. Like, how do I find out why and prevent that from happening next time? And so helping people to get more certainty around this, this benefit that just rolled out um, is a big part of what we're doing at Propel. But I don't think we're going to be the only fintech who cares, or we shouldn't be the only fintech who cares, um, that it's a mass, it's a, it's a big change for parents in the United States more broadly. And just that I think it's a, it's a trend that people in banking and financial services ought to be keenly aware of. Great. Jimmy, where can people find you? Uh, our website is joinpropel.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter at uh, Jimmy Chen. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been a pleasure to, to meet you and learn a little bit about the lens through which you're helping folks view the world. Thank you so much for having me, Amber. Yeah. Hello, listeners. I'm Brett King, the host of Breaking Banks. Together, myself and Dr. Richard Petty have recently released our latest best-selling book, The Rise of Techno-Socialism. We look at how inequality, artificial intelligence, and climate change are going to shape our world moving forward. During the pandemic, the wealth of the world's billionaires ballooned. The richest 1% added $1.6 trillion to their wealth, meaning that they own more wealth than the bottom 90% of Americans today. Unemployment skyrocketed during the pandemic, but artificial intelligence could disrupt up to 80% of the jobs today. These new industries we are creating will face labor shortages because we aren't training our students with the right skills. By 2050, we'll need to produce 70% more food to feed the 9 billion inhabitants of the planet. But we lost 40% of our farmland to erosion and pollution in the last 50 years. By 2050, 570 global cities face inundation from sea rise. Miami, Guangzhou, New York, Calcutta and Shanghai are just the top five cities. If you want to know more about the solutions to these problems, check out The Rise of Techno-Socialism, our latest best-selling book. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or go to riseoftechnosocialism.com to find out more. Welcome to the future. All right, welcome. I am so excited to be joined today by Javier Rodriguez Soler. Javier is the Global Head of Sustainability and Head of BBVA USA. Yes, Amber, thank you very much for having me. Yes, we just announced a um, partnership with 500 Global, formerly known as 500 Startups, to um, jointly um, collaborate with uh, startups in the innovation ecosystem. We were um, early investors in 500 startups in their first fund in, back in 2011. So we've had a long-lasting relationship with them. And now we've decided to announce this further step in collaborating with them, creating this, um, the, the so-called BBVA 500 intelligence platform, which is about um, continuing our connection with the um, ecosystem and the innovation startups. What will the platform actually do? Well, 500 Global is one of the best connected platforms with um, startups and innovation. They've done um, more than 6,000 investments. So it's a huge platform that connects not only with innovation in financial services, but with innovation in all sectors of the economy. So they know these companies already. And we as a bank, we're one of the most innovative banks, as you know, Amber, in the world. And that's one of our characteristics. We've been always at the forefront of innovation and digital. 
And our second most relevant characteristic is that we operate in emerging markets. A big part of our bank uh, operates in countries like Mexico, Turkey, where we are the leading bank, or in Latin America. We also operate in Spain. So um, we always been connected with, uh, with the um, innovation ecosystem in order to learn from these companies, partner with them, and be at the forefront of uh, technological innovation, and that way help our clients. Uh, as we say, help our clients transition towards a more sustainable future. And that's what uh, this new platform will help us continue doing. And this is really just a continuation of something that we've seen from BBVA going back a long time. You've always been a bank that is a champion of sustainability. Can you tell me a little bit about that and how that is a part of your culture there? Yes, we've always been, um, as you said, Amber, working in sustainability. Mostly, I would say, in the last decades in the social aspect of sustainability. Obviously, being the most relevant bank in such relevant emerging markets, we've always been working in financial inclusion for uh, the, um, the uh, lower parts of the, of the economy, those uh, who didn't have even a, a current account. We've been helping them to open accounts, have credit cards, and so on. So in the social part of sustainability, we've been basically forever. But in the, in the uh, last few years, we put a huge emphasis on the E part of the ESG, and particularly on the climate change and decarbonization. That affects not only individuals, but more importantly, companies that need to invest heavily in uh, sustainability and decarbonization uh, to combat climate change. And in 2019, BBVA uh, put sustainability as one of its six strategic priorities. And we've been working very hard with our clients to help them transition towards a more sustainable future. And this summer, we announced the creation of uh, the, the new unit that I am the head of, which is the Global Head of Sustainability, that very importantly uh, reports to the uh, executive chairman and the CEO, and it's strategic and it's a business. So for us, it's a business unit. That's why this unit uh, has co-reporting with uh, all the different uh, key business people in, in, within the bank, uh, both for corporate and investment banking and for retail. That's so key. This is not a vanity role. You have a lot of real work and responsibility that you're doing for the for the bank. That's exciting to see that, that it's something substantial at your institution. Let me, let me give you a, a few figures in, in that regard. Uh, we committed in 2018 to have a, a, we had a pledge of uh, having 100 billion euros in sustainable investing. And we realized that we were moving much faster than we had originally expected. So recently we... Um, double our pledge to 200 billion euros up to 2025. And in June this year, we already had 67 billion euros. So we are very, very excited to be, um, to be um, having this pledge, which is sustainable finance, both in the climate part and in the social part. So let's talk about climate change for a little, for a second. You, why is this important to do now? What is happening with the earth that is really lit a fire under you guys, so to speak? Yes, Amber. Well, climate change is not important only for BBA. It's very important for, for the planet and for the whole world, as we are all realizing. Let me explain just a minute what, what this is all about. So basically, a bit more than 200 years ago, uh, we, we faced the Industrial Revolution. So we discovered that taking fossil fuels from um, under our feet and burning these fossil fuels, we could create energy. So that was the Industrial Revolution that we all benefited from. But unfortunately, we've realized that extracting so much carbon from the, from the um, underground and putting, uh, burning it and putting this CO2 and other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere creates what is called the greenhouse effect, which basically consists of all this carbon uh, in the atmosphere surrounding the Earth 
keeps more uh, energy from the sun than it should. So for millions of years, the Earth has been absorbing, it's, it's about equilibrium, has been absorbing CO2 and emitting CO2. There's nothing inherently bad about CO2. Actually, CO2 plants use CO2 for photosynthesis and then to create life. So carbon is the essence of life. The problem is that we are extracting too much carbon too fast, burning it to create energy, and that's unsustainable. We've realized that this creates these um, changes in the climate, this uh, increase in the average temperature of the Earth. It may sound like not a big number, 1.5 degrees, as we wanna, we're going to go below that, but it's, it's a big deal because that's an average, but that implies huge uh, changes in the, uh, in the climate patterns. So basically, we need to reinvent the way we power the world and the way, the way we um, extract energy. So that's why uh, all, in all countries you see that their investment in renewable energy is much bigger now in some developed markets than that of fossil fuels. And there's some in innovation that are already economically feasible, that the one I mentioned, uh, renewable energy to produce uh, electricity. But there are so many others that need to come. I'm talking about carbon sequestration. I'm talking about new uh, generations of batteries for cars, uh, innovations for aviation, shipping, cement, steel. So all sectors need to uh, face innovations. And the banks need to finance those, in those innovations, uh, channeling the public money as well as, more importantly, making sure that the private money comes to the right companies and to the right entrepreneurs and to the right individuals. So this is why the, the role of banks in this decarbonization effort is so relevant and why BBVA has decided to lead the effort worldwide. Some of those technologies that you mentioned, carbon sequestration, things like that, that don't have as much development, is that part of what you're looking at through this new platform that you've launched with 500? Precisely, precisely. Okay. So basically, to uh, really know where the innovation is taking place, you need to partner with the best that know what's going on. And innovation obviously takes place in many many places in the world. So you have Silicon Valley, but you have innovation taking place in Mexico, Latin America, Europe, everywhere. So you really need to have the connection with what's going on, startups, entrepreneurs, innovators, universities. So that way we, we are connecting with a few partners and now we are very proud to announce this partnership with 500 Global in that regard. Why do you think so few banks have taken as powerful of a stance as BBVA is on sustainability, particularly some of the smaller banks? Um, what do you think is the holdup there? Well, I'd say it's lack of resources, probably, and lack of knowledge a little bit. So, like, for instance, in the U.S., in the U.S. there are more than 4,000 financial institutions, as you know. So it's, a, it's a humongous number. Uh, I, think, I think that those banks that do not adapt to two aspects, the digital transformation, the digital activity when they interact with their clients and a sustainable plan for the clients, I think those banks will disappear. So uh, why are banks so slow in realizing what we uh, realized a few years ago? Again, it's part of it is lack of knowledge and part of it is lack of resources. So there will be a need of scale. So many banks will, I think there will be a lot of consolidation and the banks who don't uh, embrace this huge opportunity will, will end up disappearing, I think. Javier, it's really interesting to me that you are so passionate about this issue because you're a longtime banker, right? Can, can you talk me through kind of your path to this role? Yes, yes, that's, that's a very good question, Amber. So, well, I started my career in, in consulting in McKinsey & Company, and I had the opportunity uh, to, uh, to work with uh, 
banking, energy, and technology companies at that time. Uh, afterwards, I did my MBA, and uh, I worked in a technology startup uh, in, the, in the Internet Revolution in the year 1999-2000, and then I moved to the energy sector. So I uh, worked for six years in Endesa, now part of ML Group, which is one of the most advanced power companies, most advanced in terms of renewable energy in, in the world, very big operator in Europe and, and Latin America. And after that, I joined BBVA actually as um, head of energy clients or as an industrial banker in corporate and investment banking. And then I spent most of my career in BBVA as a head of strategy and M&A. Uh, then I was head of the BBVA in the USA uh, that we actually um, sold the commercial bank to PNC. We just announced it. Uh, we just closed the transaction. We sold it for, for $11.6 billion. And after that, I, I became um, head of sustainability, which is a little bit like going back to my roots, going back to energy and technology, which is what I, what I had been doing all my life. That's perfect. So you kind of came full circle. That's absolutely right. I came to, to whatever I really, really enjoy, which is uh, the convergence of technology, sustainability and energy within a bank. It's, it's a, a great privilege to be doing this. It is very special that, that your role exists and really excited for the announcement here. Javier, what do you wish I would have asked you about, but I didn't? Yeah, I would say something that is important, Amber, is um, how it's uh, the um, sustainability unit position in, uh, well, we commented briefly about it, but how all the, why all the banks are not doing the same? Well, I would say that, uh, as I explained to you, the sustainability unit for us is key, and that's why we've put it at the maximum level of the organization, and it's a business unit. It's not a control unit or it's not a support unit, but it's a business unit, and I guess um, good question would be that why aren't other banks doing the same? My guess, and we'll see in a few months or years if it, I'm right or not, my guess is that every bank will follow our steps. Well, that's exciting. I hope to see that come to fruition. I hope so. Thank you so much for your time, Javier. It's been a pleasure, and um, we look forward to many more announcements to come from your area. Thank you very much, Amber. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this week. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform or share it with a friend or share it on social media. We'll see you again next week with more Breaking Banks.